Hey, welcome to the Youth Pastor Theologian Podcast, where theology and youth ministry meet. You can learn more about Youth Pastor Theologian online at youthpastortheologian.com or find us on social media at Youth Theologian. I'm your host, Mike McGarry. Thanks for joining us for this conversation about practicing theology and youth ministry. I'm here in our online studio with my good friend, Michelle Ami Reyes. Michelle is the creator of Seasoned with Grace, and she writes at the intersection of multiculturalism, faith, and justice. She's the author of Becoming All Things and the co-author of Racewise Family. Michelle lives in Austin, Texas with her pastor husband and two amazing kids. And Michelle, you are such an encourager to me, and I am so thankful for our friendship. How are you doing today? Oh, good. Thanks for having me. I, I love everything about Youth Pastor Theologian and the work that you do. So honored to be here. Doing well. The honor is mine. We've been talking for months about having <laughs> yes. this, this conversation, and so I'm really delighted that it's finally happening. Yes, um, just a, a few weeks back, you started these Seasoned with Grace cohorts, and just curious if, if you could just share with our listeners a little bit about those cohorts and how's it going? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks for asking about that. So I launched uh, Seasoned with Grace at the beginning of January, uh, and it is a curated journey for Christian leaders, so pastors, uh, directors, entrepreneurs. And if you find yourself in any position where you're leading somebody, whether that's your children or a team, uh, it's it's for Christian leaders to learn how to have gracious conversations on race in order to pursue uh, not only healthy, but biblically rooted racial change. So I work mm-hmm. with uh, work with Christian leaders on how to not only personally develop as a leader and, and how to engage race with grace, but, but what does it mean to lead a group of people towards uh, gospel-rooted racial change? So yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been really, just really encouraged, honestly, working with folks around the country just to hear uh, the good work that people are doing in their contexts. Uh, it's been, it's been mutually encouraging. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a program that if anyone's interested in, they can learn more about on my website, michellemireyes.com. Awesome. I love that. Um, so uh, on our podcast, we like to talk to our guests about themselves as teenagers before we dive <laughs> into our topic. So uh, today we are talking about um, how do we talk about race uh, and racism and ethnicity and all that good stuff with teenagers. But before we dive into that, who was your favorite athlete growing up and what drew you to them? Yeah, well, I played soccer growing up. Uh, that was that was my sport. It still is my sport. I absolutely love soccer. And yeah. my one of my favorite uh, soccer players growing up was David Beckham, uh, you know, big soccer star from England. And I, I promise you, my interest in David Beckham had nothing to do with the fact that he married a Spice Girl. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even, you know, listen to Spice Girl music growing up, but uh, he was just so good at, at, at scoring goals and, uh, you know, curving the ball in the air uh, and all that. And, and actually, 
Uh, right around that time where I was in high school, uh, about 2002, the movie Bend It Like Beckham mm-hmm. came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for those who may not be familiar with the story, it follows the life of an Indian high school girl played by Parminder Nagra, who uh, is also in love with the game of soccer. And she wants to play, but she, uh, she, you know, her, she has a traditional family and they just want her to focus on academics. They don't want her, like she knows they would not understand or support mm-hmm. her desire to play soccer. So she has to sneak out uh, to, to, to play soccer. And for me, that was the first time I ever saw another Indian girl playing soccer. Like I didn't have any, uh, you know, Indian friends or in my community or I didn't know any other Indian girls playing soccer. So Bend It Like Beckham was the first time I saw another Indian girl playing soccer. Yeah. And that was very formative for me. Uh, it's what inspired me to keep playing, even though like it's not the quote Indian thing to do. Like I still uh-huh. don't know many Indian soccer players. Yeah. Uh, so bend it like Beckham and actually David Beckham himself, uh, you know, uh, I suppose that's the importance of cultural representation, right? Uh, for, yeah. for kids in high school. But so that's, that's my answer to that question. That's a really cool answer. Uh, and the way that lined up that you got already a big fan before the movie came out. <laughs> Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so, when we come to talk with students um, about racism, it's a lot. Uh, it, it's very easy and tempting to avoid those conversations. Um, whenever, as soon as we say the the word racism, it, it seems like everyone's alarm bells and warning lights start start going off uh, because we all bring our our personal baggage into the conversation. Uh, no, we don't want to offend anyone. Um, and then there's all the political uh, misunderstandings and political implications of, of everything. It's just a really difficult conversation. Um, and so um, I think it's just a, a helpful conversation for you and I to hear, to have, as we just think about and reflect on um, why, why do we have these conversations in, in student ministry. So. Uh, could you just share a little bit about your own background and what? how does that shape the way that you navigate these conversations about race and ethnicity? Yeah, totally. I love this question because it starts with things being personal and they yeah. have to be personal, right? To yeah. care about this. It can't just be any topic, uh, but particularly topics like race and culture. Mm-hmm. It can't just be an intellectual exercise, right? Like you have to feel... Yeah. Like the spirit has moved within your bones <laughs> to, to to rise up and 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 do something. So, um, I love I love this question. But yeah, so uh, I, I am a second generation bicultural Indian American, and basically what that means is that my dad is uh, British. He has British German roots. So my dad has blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, you know, he can trace his family heritage all the way through the daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and all of his family, they're still farmers today out in uh, the Northeast. And uh, so that's his side of the family. And then my mom, she is 100% ethnically Indian. But she wasn't born and raised in India. She grew up in the diaspora. She was born and raised in Uganda, Africa. Uh, you know, her her great great grandparents were brought by the British Empire to Uganda to build the railroad there, oh, and they just stayed long enough to start having families and yeah. developing Indian villages. Uh, so she grew up in an Indian village in Uganda, Africa, um, and then 
uh, under the the leadership of President Idi Amin, the, the dictator President Idi Amin, uh, where he waged a genocide against the Indians in Uganda and other minorities. Uh, they fled with nothing but the shirts on their back to to England uh, and became became refugees in England. So. Uh, my mom eventually made her way to the States, met my dad. Uh, she grew up Hindu. She converted to Christianity when she met my dad uh, and her family disowned her. <laughs> so that's a wow. whole other story. But yeah. I haven't met the majority of my mom's family because of being disowned. Um, so, you know, growing up, uh, it, it, so many things are coming together or so many divides or disconnects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I am... I am an Indian girl, a brown-skinned Indian girl in a Scandinavian community in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have any Indian, let alone Asian classmates or neighbors. There's no Indians or Asians at my church. You know, almost everybody I knew was blonde hair, blue eyed, and and liked eating Swedish meatballs and going cross country skiing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wore saris or other Indian clothing. Uh, I, I didn't have anybody else that I knew that ate Indian food or even shared some of the same family values and traditions that I did growing up. Uh, so I, you know, I, I was a misfit in, in so many different, different ways. And it was, it was hard for me to make friends growing up. Uh, you know, I, 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 I had that exact experience that that gal has in my big fat Greek wedding at the beginning of the movie where like she goes to her little cafeteria table and she's got like moussaka, you know, that Greek yeah, food. And yeah. all the kids are like, oh, you you eat moussaka? <laughs> like I had that experience, but the Indian version, right? Yeah. Uh, with, with chicken curry and chicken tikka masala, like all the things that people love today, nobody knew about them in the early 90s, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so I wasn't cool. Uh, and And so, but even... Even more than that, like part of my story is being racially bullied um, and actually by both communities, by the white community and the Indian community, because I was too brown for my white peers. But the Indian community wanted to make sure that I knew that I wasn't a true Indian. You know, I'm only half. My name is Michelle. It's not like (laughs) Porni or Deepika or or Krishna or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But those experiences growing up of, of, being a misfit, of being on the margins, of being bullied. It just, I, I thank God for his protection over my life, for not just growing up really bitter mm-hmm. and angry. Um, but it, it made me keenly aware of just how wrong it is to treat somebody unkindly because of the color of their skin or because they're a different culture or ethnicity, or they look different, if you will. And, uh, and, and, and that that doesn't align with God's heart for all people, that that didn't uh, how I was being treated didn't align with what I was reading in the Bible of God's love <laughs> for mm-hmm. different cultures, and so ever since like high school, uh, I've just felt so passionate to want to help people of different cultures better understand each other and better yeah. appreciate each other, and really to find ways uh, instead of being scared of or dismissive, uh, really to find just simple ways to connect and and God God honoring. Uh, approaches. That's just been a passion of mine since high school because of the experiences that I've had growing up. Yeah. That Okay. So I'm going off script here a little bit. I love um, so when you were a teenager growing up in a very white community um, in church, did, did your youth group or church, did, was there ever any conversation about racism? Did, 
a youth pastor or a volunteer ever reach out to offer support or ask about that? No, or never. <laughs> never. I don't think, I don't remember ever hearing a sermon or a lesson or anything on topics of race and culture growing up. Not, not like once. Not even just a personal conversation. Just like, hey, Michelle, just... I mean, it's super awkward, right? Like, if you're yeah. a white youth pastor in a white church and you have just yeah. one and, or and two non-white students, like, how do you ask or bring that up without the kid feeling like, okay, now you're kind of being racist by singling me out? Like, it's an yeah. awkward predicament to offer pastoral care <laughs> to say, I see you yeah, without labeling them. Yeah. Right? Yes. Well, honestly, this was the 90s, right? And I think people weren't thinking about race and culture the way they are now. Even yeah. like what you were saying yeah. about how do I be sensitive? How do I connect? Like, I, I don't think my youth pastor thought about <laughs> any yeah. of that, right? I yeah. remember I have two distinct memories in church and particularly in high school. One was when I decided to come to church in, in one of my favorite like Indian outfits I always thought that like my Indian outfits were beautiful. I mean, they've got like all this intricately like gold designs and the mirrors and and the, you know, all the like beads and everything. Yeah. And so I wanted to wear an Indian outfit to church one day. And I remember, I think it was another kid in, in the youth group that was like, what are you wearing? Like, what is that? You know, like with complete <laughs> disgust on their face. And I just, uh, oh. being very introverted, I was just like, it's a sorry. And then like walked away. <laughs> like, you know, I was like, I don't want to have this conversation. But like, I never, ever wore an Indian outfit back to church, you know, after yeah, that experience. Yeah, why would you? And then the second one was we had one of those youth group overnighters or something. Mm -hmm. But it was like, you know how it is where it's like your youth group and someone else's youth group too. It's like one of those night-ins and it's a whole yeah. bunch of kids that you don't necessarily know. And yeah. we were playing dodgeball or kickball or something. And I remember it was a kid from one of the other youth groups that kept shouting at me like, hey, Pocahontas, kick me the ball kind of thing. And I just remember everyone laughing, like the teens in my youth group, my youth pastor, everyone was laughing. They thought it was hilarious. And I'm like, I'm not that kind of Indian. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Pocahontas is Native American. Like my family's from India, but like everyone thought it was just the funniest thing. And I honestly yeah. don't think my youth pastor ever had a thought of like, oh, I should go see if Michelle's okay or or I should say something like that's not appropriate. I, I just don't think a lot of people in the 90s had categories for like, oh, this is racially yeah. insensitive. We shouldn't say it. So on the one hand, I am grateful for the movements, the development since then for a greater awareness. But um, and, and like I said, by God's grace, I never became bitter at those experiences. I kind of just, you know, let them, yeah. let them slide off and, and, and keep going. Yeah. So if something like that happened today, right? Right. How would you advise a youth worker to respond to something like that where, you know, hey, Pocahontas, kick me the ball. Like, or if you hear a, a student be like, what are you wearing? Right? Yeah. Like, if you witness something like that happen, how can, how, how would you recommend a youth worker to react without overreacting, but not underreacting either? Yeah. I mean, oh gosh. <laughs> that, like, 
Mike, that right there could be a whole podcast conversation know, uh, because people ask me that all the time. Uh, we we actually had a, a youth, and this actually happened to a, a, a youth leader. He was at a youth camp. He's Latino, and he came up to like lead some activity, and kids in the in the group in the crowd started like pretending to speak Spanish, like trying to make fun of him. Yeah. And he went up there and just felt totally ashamed because he's second gen. He didn't grow up speaking Spanish. He's like, Spanish isn't even, like, I can't even speak Spanish well. And now you're making fun of me. Like I'm the Spanish yeah. guy. And he, I, I remember him coming to me and being like, next time that happens, what do I do? Like, how do I, how, like, how do you stop that crazy train? <laughs> right. Uh, and honestly, I think in moments like that, in big group moments like that, our first and primary goal should always be to de-escalate. Yeah. You know, you're not trying to like address that kid like head on and call him out and, you know, have a big lecture and just kind of maybe like feed into that, that rising temperature in the room, mm-hmm. like de-escalate. And you can just do simple things like, hey, that's not okay. Hey, we're... Hey, yeah. I'm going to, you know, we're going to talk about this later. Kind of let them know yeah. this is not just a one and done. Hey, this is not okay. We're going to talk about this later. Um, maybe just turning to the other kid that was addressed in this inappropriate way saying, hey, are you okay? Hey, I'm going to follow up with you. Or, hey, do you want to talk right now? Um, and then actually do that. Have Just stop the crazy train in the moment. Say, hey, this is not okay. We're going to, mm-hmm. we're not, this is not, this language is not allowed. This behavior is not allowed in our, in our, youth group or, or church or whatnot, follow up with the person who instigated later and have a conversation because so many times, particularly when it comes to youth, they are repeating something that they've heard from somebody else, whether yeah. it's a movie or a book or a parent or like a family member. Um, so you have to be gracious because half the time, pe- kids in particular say things that they don't even understand the meaning of. And yeah. so if you can kind of graciously get to the source, where did you hear this from? Do you know what this means? Talk about talk about cause and effect. Like I know it sounds simplistic, but like when you said this word or you when you imitated this person's accent or when you whatever, like did you think about how that would hurt that person? Like did you yeah. think about how they would feel about that? <laughs> you know, like simple cause and effect. And just get them to understand the impact of their own actions. Because if you can get to their heart and, and get them to feel like that remorse of like, oh gosh, no, I didn't intend that. Then there's room for like a healthy apology that they really actually mean. And that's the goal, yeah. I think. Uh, and then with the, the kid who was hurt or insulted in some way, just it just goes so far even if it's not your culture and you don't fully understand the joke or the insult or the slur to just say, Hey, I just want to make space for what you're feeling. How are you doing? How, you know, how are you processing this? How can I be here for you? What do you need? Like those kinds of simple questions yeah. and just give most of the time kids just need to be acknowledged, like that their hurt was acknowledged. Like I saw that happen and I know it's not mm-hmm. okay. So just simple stuff like that. Um, but if it's something that's repetitive in, in a church or in a youth group to maybe actually think about a procedure or a policy of some sort of like, or commitments, like here's the five things that we don't do (laughs) or that we don't say at youth group, you know, think about that as well. Yeah. I think that would be good. So 
for for me, one of the the phrases that I use in youth group for multiple different things um, might be helpful here. And just saying, we don't do that here. Yes. Just you know, if it's you know joking about making LGBTQ jokes, um, mm-hmm. you know, making ethnic jokes, like teasing kids, like sarcasm to the point of mockery. Um, it's just we don't do that here. We're not that yes. type of group. Um, and having conversations with your youth leaders to equip them and empower them to also um, affirm that culture and to establish and to defend that culture. Mm. There, there are things that we just don't do here, and that's yeah. one of them. I love that. Um, and to, we, we want to make sure that kids feel seen, you know, and you don't want to overcorrect in a way that puts that kid now they're in the spotlight even more yeah. well-intentioned, but now they're even more highlighted. Right. Yeah. Right. So good. So these things are um, hard, by the way. Yeah, so hard. <laughs> like, just, yeah. like knowledge. Like yeah. these are these are simple phrases to use yeah. and and all the things, but those con- those yeah. contexts these are, are they're hard. They're uncomfortable. These are the things you learn by doing it wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> And we've um, all been there. We've all yeah. made the mistakes and have realized, yeah. oh, I will never approach this situation like this mm-hmm. ever again. And that's mm-hmm. how you grow. And that's that's part of the journey. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and as a, a white youth pastor in white communities, um, there, there's always, you know, a handful of non-white kids in the group. And so th- there's there's going to be stuff that that comes up. We're not a super multicultural church or super multicultural youth ministry, but generally speaking, even if you're in a very white church, if there is a, a place in your church that is multi-ethnic, it's probably the, the youth ministry. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we just want to be aware of, of that pastoral concern, right? Um, so, so in that vein, when uh, I've talked with a lot of youth workers um, who I'm good friends with, and um, you know, they say things like, "Yeah, I just don't really directly talk about or teach about racism. Um, it's so controversial. I don't want to avoid the topic. I want to hit it sideways, mm-hmm. right? That if you if you address it head on, um, it's it's so inflammatory. Um, I'm just going to preach the gospel." And occasionally apply it to racism, so I'm not not talking about racism, <laughs> but I'm never, uh, you know, I, I'm just not gonna, I'm just not gonna do that, right? I, I'm just gonna preach the gospel. I'm just gonna preach the Bible, and on occasion where the Bible addresses racial issues, then I'll apply it there. Um, why would you recommend youth workers to occasionally? You know, we're not becoming social justice driven ministries, right? That we are yeah, yeah, yeah. youth pastor theologian. We are expository preachers. Um, we we affirm and encourage and promote expository, Bible centered, Bible driven teaching and preaching. But why might it be a good idea um, on occasion to directly teach on something like racism? Yeah, that's that's a great <laughs> that's a great question. Again, well, I, not one of the questions I sent you ahead of time. So no, I apologize. I'm so glad you asked this. And you know, it's it's funny because uh, maybe this reflects my Enneagram number, but I love 
asking people that I meet for the first time, like people that go to different churches. I'm like, how, how often does your pastor preach about race and culture and racism at your church? And, you know, so often they'll say something like, oh, you know, not that often. Our, our, our pastor preaches um, exegetically, not topically. Uh, so he only addresses race and culture if it comes up in the passage. Uh, and I always find that such an intriguing answer. Uh, because I'm, I'm all for exegetical preaching too. But I think people don't realize how often race and culture come up in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even within the, the Israelites, you know, the, the, the body of people that constitute the Israelites is an incredibly diverse people. It's not just like a bunch of Hebrews walking around, you know, like mm-hmm. there's, Phineas, uh, the Cushite, and there's Rahab, the Canaanite. And uh, I mean, you think about all uh, of, of the relationships and marriages in, in the Old Testament, for example, and so many of them are people of different cultures marrying uh, to, you know, whether it's like Esther and Xerxes or Rahab and, and Boaz, or I'm sorry, Rahab and Salmon or uh, Ruth and Boaz or, 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 or fill in the blank, David and Bathsheba. These are all actually people of different cultures. Um, Jesus's ministry, you know, you think about uh, Matthew chapter one, the genealogy there where you see mm-hmm. the fact that like uh, he's got Hittite, Moabite, Canaanite uh, heritage. And then in Matthew, he's like reaching the Canaanites, which is like not an ethnic group at that time, but like it's part of the narrative to show Jesus's ministry is to all people. So I think first and foremost, and this goes back to like seminary, uh, is like, how can we better equip youth pastors, pastors, Christian leaders in general to better see and understand a theology of culture and ethnicity in scripture and to see how it flows from Genesis through Revelation, because it's there. And it's not just something you find maybe in three different spots in scripture. It's, it's all over. So how do we increase the awareness to its existence in the text? I think that's, that's uh, step number one. But that being aside, like you said, we don't want to become sort of like these social justice ministries. We want to be Christ-centered in all that we do. Uh, and if you take any passage, you know, you have your three points, like maybe one of them talks about race uh, or culture or, or God's, God's heart for all peoples or God's heart for reconciliation or unity and diversity or how these peoples together is part of uh, giving worship to God or, or whatnot. But it, it always comes back to the bigger movements of what God's doing in scripture, what God's doing in history. Uh, you know, it, it always comes, comes back to to the work of Christ and building mm-hmm. God's kingdom. So uh, we, can, we can do this well. We can, we, can, we can stay rooted in scripture and do this well. Yes. I just think we need to maybe start with some texts like Jarvis Williams' uh, Redemptive uh, Kingdom Diversity or J. Daniel Hayes' uh, From Every Tribe and Nation, A Theology of Race. Like, let's do the work to educate ourselves to better see and understand this in scripture so we know how to point to Christ in it when, when it, we come across a text where it's very clear that we need to address it. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and even as you are listing out some of those names, it's like how many names that we know in the Bible are location-based, right? Like yeah. um, Uriah the Hittite and <laughs> like Bildad, the, the, what, like, like, like how yeah. many people's names are like 
we think of their last name, but their last name is actually the city or the tribe that they're from. <laughs> right. Right. Um, it's just very tribal. It's a very location-based text um, from the ancient world. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's there. And if we use, well, I'm an exegetical preacher as a reason not to talk about race and ethnicity and culture, um, then frankly, we, we need to be better exegetes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah, and just Amen. aware. And just aware. <laughs> you know, yes. it doesn't mean that every sermon is a racism sermon or, or anything, but just to be aware of the ways that, that culture informed scripture and that the culture was operating very much, um, not just way in the background, m- maybe not what's the primary thing in this text or but there were cultural implications that shaped the way that this story happened or the reason why Paul responded that way or why Jesus said that thing. Um, and just to acknowledge um, with our yes. students the way that culture helps us understand yes. um, the and way. It, it that, only yeah. it only makes your teaching stronger yeah. and more yeah. nuanced and more complex. <laughs> yep. Yep. You're not diverting from the gospel. You're just breathing you know, more life into it. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. So, all right. So, how does the gospel reshape the way we think and talk about racism? Um, in particular, how does the gospel inform the way we talk about race and, and ethnicity and racism differently from how the world talks about those things? Yeah. I'm really glad you're asking this question, Mike, uh, because the phrase in particular, let's just focus on the gospel has become this really big rallying cry for Christians and, and churches in particular ever since uh, the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And even then that whole summer where there was like these national protests and, 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 and marches and demonstrations and whatnot, C- Christians in particular continue to push back on race conversations with yeah. this phrase, let's just focus on the gospel. And I remember thinking at that time, like, what is happening here? <laughs> like, Why this deflection? You know, why are people pushing back on race and using the quote gospel as a, as a shield, uh, you know, to deny racial realities? Uh, that was one of those moments. It was like those light bulb moments where I was like, okay, you and I, I think we have different definitions of the gospel. Right. <laughs> so it, it clicked for me. Like, I, I don't, and, and this is no shade on, on some Christians, but I think some of us don't have a, a robust understanding of the gospel, right? So, you know, many of us have been thought, taught to think that. The gospel is this purely like spiritual entity. It's about getting right with Christ, you know, salvation and a certain maybe set of doctrine to adhere to or a confession or something like that. And then you're good, you know, (laughs) you're living out the gospel. You just need to focus on now getting other people to believe in Jesus and adhere to these doctrines. And this is the gospel. Now, yes, the gospel is that. It is about turning away from a life of sin, confessing, believing in Jesus. I mean, that's John 3.16, right? It's, mm-hmm. But it's also so much more. And we can actually look to the life and ministry of Jesus uh, to understand the full picture of the gospel, because when Jesus enters human history, he saves people holistically, right? Like he sees the way that people suffer physically, socially, and spiritually. And then he offers himself as a bomb to all of our our, our pains and our, and our brokenness. Uh, and, and for him, 
when Jesus proclaims the good news of the gospel, he's proclaiming holistic restoration, restoring us, uh, get my directions right, vertically <laughs> between <laughs> us and God, but also horizontally yeah. between us and fellow humans and, and, and systems and nature and everything else. Um, and that's why, like, I mean, reach Mark chapter one, he begins with, you know, a call for confession of sins, but then what does he do immediately after that? He goes and heals the blind, the sick, the lame, uh, the, with people with leprosy so that they can be restored back into society. That's actually huge, you know, that they can yeah. kind of become, you know, whatever it was in that time to be an equal class citizen with, with access to the same rights of society as everybody else. And so um, I say all that for us as Christians in the aftermath of a racial tragedy or in, in, in the aftermath of an of a incident with racism, should we pray for people to come to faith? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Should mm -hmm. we pray that God is made great in the, in the midst of turmoil and suffering and that people come to him? Yes, all of that. But we should also pray that, that God can use us to, to work towards holistic restoration um, in, in whatever the context is that, that we can, uh, you know, and that we should, we should care about um, Full-bodied peoples, not just people's souls, but mm -hmm. but their 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 uh, their heart, their emotion, their their social standing, all of that. So think of it this way: when it comes to an issue of racism, for us as followers of Jesus, we should ask ourselves: How are we proclaiming the full good news of the gospel to those yeah. who have been hurt? And how can I help restore what has been broken in a way that aligns with with Jesus's heart for all people? And part of that is just learning to better love our neighbors, you know, leaning in, mm -hmm. listening well instead of defending, at times learning how to raise our voices, um, to, but, but mostly just learning to live life alongside hurting communities and to just live into that commandment to love God and love others the best we can. Yeah, that's so good. And uh, I forget what it was, something you said um, at, at the beginning of, of your response there uh, triggered this thought too about um, just who is Jesus, right? And it's just uh, throughout church history, yeah. so much thought about Christ and the Bible teaches, especially in Hebrews, right? Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, right? Mm -hmm. As a prophet, he came and he preached, proclaimed freedom to the captives. Um, as the priest, right? He uh, tore down the, the wall um, in the temple, the court of Gentiles, and he welcomed the nations in. Um, to come and to to be saved, right? So it, it's mm. you know the gospel yeah. for Jews and Gentiles together. Um, and what type what type of kingdom does he reign over? But a a multi ethnic kingdom, right? And yes. so it's even just if, if we understand the gospel, if we understand who Jesus even is, um, who are we worshiping when we say um, we are followers of Christ? Mm. Right, that um, prophet, priest, king. That there, there are um, very much um, ethnic overtones. I think in in multiple aspects of that. Amen. Um, so, uh, when so as as someone who 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 advocates and talks about race and and racism, um, I am sure you've come across some common misconceptions about what you do. <laughs> And about what it means to be a peacemaker in mm. in terms of of race, 
so what are some of those misunderstandings that you think would be helpful for youth workers in particular to just be be aware of and to maybe for us ourselves to avoid or as we try having these conversations in our churches and with our students to be aware of um, what people might hear that we're not intending. Yeah, 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 that's good. Uh, let me, I'll just get real personal. I'll just share two big misconceptions that I've had about race uh, conversations and dialogues in my yeah. own life, sort of yeah. mistakes I've made <laughs> and what I've learned from them. Uh, the first is that I, in years past, particularly when I was starting out in my early 20s, I thought I needed to publicly call out folks uh, that I disagreed with. And I think this is probably a really good, helpful tool for youth pastors trying to like, particularly disciple Gen Z on how to engage race well. Yeah. But, you know, as a younger woman, just full of passion and zeal, and I, I need to like <laughs> share the truth. Uh, I just, I completely believe that calling people out publicly was like, the way to hold powers that be accountable and, and actually work towards positive racial progress. But I've yeah. come to now see how damaging that is, um, how damaging call-out culture is, and uh, just how, uh, if, if you kind of just think about it on a very simple, personal, sociological level, like when if you personally have ever had somebody like call you out publicly, like just shame you and, and uh, you know, assume the worst of you, like in that moment, how likely are you to say, oh, thank you for sharing that with me. You're so right. I'm, I'm going to desist what I'm doing yeah. and do a full 180 and do exactly what you're wanting me to do. Yeah. Um, the second make I've made over the years is just expecting people to change too quickly uh, I you know I'd see a problem I'd come up with a solution and then be frustrated that folks weren't changing overnight or maybe even in a matter of a few weeks or months. I remember even in my early twenties being frustrated with churches. Uh, you know we'd had the meeting we'd talked about a plan but then weeks or even months go by and it's like hey what's what's going on like why why am I not seeing any change? Uh, and the problem I've learned over the years was was me not these people I was talking with or the churches I was observing because I had no concept of the fact that when it comes to racial change, we need to have long-term goals. Um, it's, it's, it's like that, that story of the tortoise and the hare, right? Like the moral of the story is that the slow yeah. and steady pace yeah. wins the race. And the same is true for racial change. Uh, I expected people's thinking and behavior on, on, on race to just transform overnight. Uh, you know, maybe after one conversation or reading one book or watching one movie or one encounter, but racial change is more like an oven than a microwave. Mm -hmm. uh, so now I go slower and I have healthier expectations, which also just um, allows me to like treat people in more honoring way and gracious ways too, right? So like if you're talking regularly with an individual, change is best cataloged over the course of six months to a year. Yeah. Uh, if you're talking about a group, I mean, this is like one to two years sort of chart for for change. And with an organization or a church, a realistic, you know, expectation for racial change is about three to five years. And so whether whether it's the youth pastor himself or herself wanting to work towards racial change in their church, having a healthy expectation of of how long that might take, yeah. or even you know, sort of conveying this to 
your your students and your youth group. Uh, but I think that we all just need to get better right now um, at, at understanding that racial change, that, that we should have a reasonable expectation for the rate of racial mm-hmm. change um, and, and working better on celebrating the small wins. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, it's so easy to and tempting, right, to want the big splash of, of yeah. a big impact. Um, and I think that's really good counsel that we don't need to publicly call out every offender. Um, we don't need to make a statement about everything that's getting splashed all over social media or TikTok or whoever the biggest villain of the week is. Um, you know, like <laughs> right. we don't we don't need to make public statements about all of those things. And that's not yeah. Um, so it's just not helpful. It's just not. And it clouds no, the truth. It's not, you know. And then by the time the truth comes out, nobody cares anymore because <laughs> 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 there's been this big social media controversy, and that's on us. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, on us. We we feed the system. Um, and so I, I guess what I was, yeah, I I started first hearing the whole um, we just preach the gospel. We don't talk about racism after Trayvon Martin um, and everything, and that was it feels like forever ago. Um, and I remember um, talking in, in an elders meeting about how are we going to address this? What are we going to do? And really being surprised by the pushback um, and being really troubled. Um, and I remember I called one of my um, black friends uh, who ministers in Boston. I said, Virginia, what do I, what do, I do here? And she kind of just laughed and she's like, welcome to the team. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, that's not helpful. I right? want to do something. Right? And she's like, Mike, just do what you can and have individual conversations. <laughs> she was yeah. like, the frustration that you are feeling right now is what we have been feeling for decades. So mm-hmm. just, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> welcome to yeah, the club. She, I love yeah, it. <laughs> she was, she was, I, I felt so condescended to, and at the same time, like I have no right to be a, like, she's, she's right. She's totally right. Virginia, you're totally mm-hmm. right. Um, and the, mm-hmm. it's just, you make more progress with individual conversations. Um, and you're going to feel pressure, even like maybe this podcast, maybe you're listening and you feel like, Oh, I've never really directly talked about racism in youth group. I need to do it. I know I'm going to get in trouble, and I'm going to do like, have individual conversations first. That doesn't mean that you yeah. never talk about racism, uh, but you also don't need to go in guns blazing either. Yes, um, walk with wisdom and walk with courage and walk with humility, um, and th- those things will take you farther than just coming in all riled up. Mm-hmm. Um, Amen. Yeah, so it's, it's really good, <laughs> Counsel Michelle. Um, last question is when there is conflict and when there are misunderstandings, um, when parents do tell you, we'd rather you not talk about this, or maybe an elder um, or a leader in the church says, we don't want you talking about this. Um, maybe this is a, a bit controversial or I don't know. but. How do we, how do we process that um, when, when you want to support, you want to talk about 
hard topics and you want to talk about social justice topics, um, not from a culture warrior, social justice warrior, social gospel type of approach, um, and you're told not to. How do we how do we process that? <laughs> yeah, this is so good. I keep saying that about all your questions, Mike. They're all such good questions uh, because the issue here, you know, not knowing how to disagree well, I I really feel like that's destroying the church right now. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, go on Twitter on any given day, and you're going to see Christians tearing each other apart because of their differing stances or perspectives uh, or in-house, you know, people losing jobs or losing uh, relationships or, or whatnot. It, I mean, it's ugly. I hate it. Uh, we don't, we as a society, but we also as Christians, we don't know how to disagree well. Yeah, we don't. You know, now instead of saying, well, that's your view and this is my view and I love you, let's like, let's just carry on, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Now it's, if someone disagrees with you, they come after your character, your job, your, your livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, people's lives get ruined and that should not be uh, the, the, the reality of canceling, shaming each other over disagreements should not exist in the life of the body of Christ. And, and we have to do better. Scripture calls us to do better. But I think to your point, what you're saying is this becomes personal very quickly. You know, when the parent, when the elder, when your boss, whoever it is, is coming up to you, addressing their quote unquote concern, yeah. it becomes very personal because now it's a question of your character or your leadership capability. Mm-hmm. And you as the individual have to choose in that moment to be the bigger person. You have to choose not to like throw ammo <laughs> back, uh, if, if you will. And I think one, this is where the verse James 119 becomes incredibly important, you know, where it says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Yeah. If you're just fuming in that moment because you're hurt or you just think like, well, this is really unfair criticism, you can't say anything nice. Just don't say yeah. anything. Just say, okay, thank you. Let me sit with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let me let me think about this. I'll get back to you. But like if we if if we want to continue to have a seat at that table, and and that's a calling in and of itself, but if you feel called to that church, that youth group, that staff, and you feel like, okay, no, this is a something that the Spirit has put on my heart, I feel passionate about talking about race and culture, I want to do good work here, then the way you do it is by learning motivation. Become a better listener and seek out motivation. And and, and what I mean by that is when you seek out motivation for a stance, you will always have a more constructive dialogue, right? So here's what I mean by that. A parent comes up to you and says, I'm really concerned about what you're saying. My kid came home, said that you said X, Y, Z at youth group last week. You know, instead of trying to fight, you know, jargon with jargon, well, well, that's in the Bible, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. You need to figure out, okay, what's the fear? What, what was the alarm? What's the alarm bell going off for this parent? And it might not actually have anything to do with what you, you think the issue is. And so here's five questions. If you get into that situation, here's five questions to ask. Maybe all, maybe just one, but 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 one of them is just simply, you know, what, uh, what, why are you interested in this topic? You know, like if if somebody comes with like a lot of opinions and 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 ideas about systemic racism or justice or whatever, like, okay, tell me, tell me why you're passionate about this, or tell me 
why this really gets you motivated, okay? A second question could just simply be, what do you feel is your biggest fear when it comes to this topic? You know, hit that question head on. And you might be surprised with what people say, what they're actually worried about. And then when they share that, okay, then address that. Yeah. Then then, uh, the first concern. The third question, what do you wish would happen regarding this topic and why? You know, whether it's national protests or police brutality or whatever it is that's being brought up, what do you wish would happen regarding this and why? So you kind of get an idea of maybe their 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 dreams, their hopes, their wishes. Um, a fourth question, again, to root this personally, is to ask them, have you had any personal experiences regarding this topic? And if so, would you be open to sharing? You're not saying this in a sarcastic way, kind of to like put them down like, yeah. oh, you know nothing. Yeah. Like you're genuinely trying to say, hey, if 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 this has impacted you personally, I'd like to know because that story is going to really help open your own eyes. Mm-hmm to why they feel the way they do. And then, and then finally, uh, a fifth question you could ask is, what if nothing changed regarding this topic? Like, what do you think would happen? And again, that'll give you insight into their motivations, their fears, their stances, all of that. And so, you know, the next time you get really angry or someone really it comes and confronts you and it feels left field, uh, you know, just ask yourself, how well am I understanding their motivations? How right. well am I listening to them? And that, again, is going to require being the bigger person. But if you can get there, then you can finally begin to have those healthy, productive conversations. Yeah, yeah that's really good. Um, and never say that you're being the bigger person. Don't verbalize that. I'm going to be the bigger person. That'll end right? the conversation. Like, <laughs> yeah. How many of us have seen our kids be like, I'm the one who's ending it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, and That's, you that, just that, that part's poured the in, internal monologue. Right? There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, that was, yeah. That's really good, Michelle. Could you give us uh, just like a quick a thirty second summary of your two books? Uh, wh- what are uh, becoming all things and race wise family? What are those those two books about? Sure. Uh, Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures is based off of 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, where Paul says, I be- well, one of the verses says, I became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And the question I'm asking is, how do we today become all things to all people uh, for the sake of the gospel? So this book is all about mapping out a theology of culture in scripture, verse verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 9, um, understanding our own cultural identity. How do we develop that? How do we um, appreciate who God has made us? How do we appreciate mm-hmm. other people's cultural identities? You know, things like becoming more comfortable in cultural discomfort, yeah. uh, what language to use, how to how to make friends with people who don't speak English, you know, yeah. like all of yeah. those things. How do we connect? Um, and honestly, that's a great low bar for any church, right? Like if they're scared of talking about racism and justice, yeah. Talk about culture. Yeah. Ta- you know, yeah. start with a book like Becoming yeah. All Things. That's a great low bar. Um, but then my second book, The Race Wise Family, uh, 10 Postures to Becoming Households of Healing and Hope is, is basically taking a lot of those same ideas and equipping Christian parents on how to have conversations about skin color, ethnicity, justice, all of those things with their children, how to raise kingdom-minded race-wise children. So uh, that book is just chock full of practical wisdom because we know parents, we're busy. We don't want to be reading long books. We don't have time for that. Um, so there's there's 
practical activities. There's short, like mm-hmm. kid-friendly definitions. There's, uh, you know, prayers and a book and movie guide. Like watch this movie and have this conversation on culture and race with your kids. Like all of that. So it's a, it's a fun book uh, that we're hoping can help uh, Christian parents feel empowered to have gospel-rooted, like mm-hmm. Christ-centered conversations on culture and race with their with their kids. Awesome. I love it. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening in. Thanks for your ministry. Um, so go check out uh, Michelle. And uh, if someone wanted to find you online, Michelle, could you remind us again of your website? Yeah, my website is my name, michellemireyes.com. And I also like to hang out on Instagram. And my handle is michellemireyes. So feel free to come say hi. That's Ami, A-M-I. Yes. So, um, Michelle, thank you so much for your friendship, for your ministry. Thanks for joining us um, on this episode of the podcast. It's so much fun. I so enjoy our time together. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Please visit youthpastortheologian.com to learn more about our resources. You can find us on social media at Youth Theologian. We also have an active Facebook group where you can ask questions, share articles, and generally encourage fellow youth pastor theologians who are in the trenches with you. We'd sure appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to subscribe, leave a review, or even recommend this podcast to fellow youth workers. You can also subscribe to get new articles delivered to your inbox and to ensure that you don't miss any fresh content by checking out our website at youthpastortheologian.com. Most of all, we appreciate your ministry and your partnership in the gospel. If there's a topic that you'd like us to address, or if you have an article to submit for the blog, then you can also share those on our website by following the submissions tab. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus, and we'll see you next week.